artificial intelligence in voice replication, global tech loyalty programs, hoaxes in the software industry, and the future of enterprise technology. Those are just a few things we're going to cover here today in episode number 112 of Transformation Ground Control. This is Transformation Ground Control. Your source for all things business, technology, strategy, and change. If you're growing your business, leading change within your organization, or undertaking any sort of operational or technology change initiative, this podcast is for you. This show covers what you need to know about digital transformation, organizational change, operational improvement, and business growth. Five, four, three, two, one. And now, here's your host, Eric Kimberly. Hello, welcome to Transformation Ground Control, episode number 112. This is the podcast that covers everything related to digital transformation, including the people, process, technology, strategy, and other aspects of transformation. My name is Eric Kimberling here with Kyler Cheatham. Uh, Kyler, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. As always, happy to be here. Happy to have you here. And uh, just as a reminder, new episodes every Wednesday on YouTube, LinkedIn, Facebook, Twitter, and audio podcast platforms throughout the world. And uh, this podcast is, as we've discussed in other episodes, uh, named after a referral to David Bowie and his Space Oddity song and Major Tom to Ground Control. So fun little fact, uh, this show goes well beyond digital transformation into David Bowie type stuff as well. Um, so thanks for being here today. We've got a great episode planned for you. We're going to start off with some questions and answers from the audience or questions from the audience, I should say, and then we're going to provide some answers um, from the question jar that we pull from social media or that Kyler pulls from social media. We're going to talk about uh, some emerging trends in terms of AI and voice replication, as well as global technology loyalty programs. And then later in the show, we're going to do a segment on some of the hoaxes in the software industry, some of the misleading things that you should be aware of as you navigate your digital transformation and work with third-party vendors in your transformation. We're going to decipher or um, not decipher, but we're going to demystify. No, I'm not sure. I'm, lo I'm losing. I'm not finding the right word here, but we're going to pull back the veil of some of the hidden uh, practices, some of the dark sides of, of the digital transformation in software space. So stick around for that. That'll be a great conversation. And then later in the show, we will talk about the future of enterprise technology uh, in the context of our um, big milestone of reaching 50,000 YouTube subscribers on my YouTube channel. So we will uh, do sort of a general discussion with questions and answers as well as discussing the future of enterprise tech. But before we get to that, uh, what are some of these uh, questions and other hot topics you've got for us, Kyler? So for those of you that are new here and haven't experienced our very cool question jar, I do pull all of Eric's user questions off of his social media accounts, YouTube, Twitter, LinkedIn, TikTok, all of the above. Um, you can tag me at Kyler Cheatham if you want to be featured on the show. Um, you can also go ahead and drop a comment in wherever you're listening from today. And I go back in, pull those comments, and then we ask Eric. So this will be a variety, a mixed bag of subjects. So let's see what your users wanted to ask you today. So what are some examples of what you should expect in a change strategy? Good question. Um, so while every change strategy is going to be a bit different, you're going to apply different tools and 
processes and deliverables based on what it is you're trying to accomplish. There are some that are pretty common or should be pretty common in universal and change strategies. So a few that come to mind, one is the an organizational readiness assessment, which is really a way to quantify and measure how ready the organization is for change, which parts of the organization are more ready for change and which parts of the organization may not be as ready. And so it's a way for you to have a better lay of the land so that you can create a change strategy and plan that's very targeted to where you need the most help. It, it doesn't do you a whole lot of good just to take a shotgun, one size fits all approach to change management. You, you really want to start off by understanding where the biggest sources of resistance might be and what the biggest challenges might be from a change perspective using that readiness assessment. Uh, beyond that, a couple others that are fairly universal that I can comfortably say that it doesn't depend. You usually are going to do these no matter what. Uh, another one is change impact assessments. So really understanding what the impact to your current state is and who's affected by it and how. And that's a way for you to get ahead of the curve well before you get to training and just general basic project communications to share with the workforce what the project means to them, how their job is going to look going forward. It gives them a chance to freak out and panic maybe. And you want them to freak out and panic earlier, not later in, in the transformation. And it gives you time to work through that just so that you have a, a clear vision of what what that future state is. And then the other piece of it that I would say is should be pretty universal, but it's probably, it's one of the ones that's most overlooked, if not the most overlooked of, of all the different change tactics and strategies. And that is the organizational design. So just having uh, a clarity and a definition of what the future state organization is going to be, not just the business processes, but how job roles and responsibilities are going to be. And that goes hand in hand with that change impact assessment. But what too often happens is it's, it's sort of like an afterthought of, you know, for example, I'm going to automate someone's job and it's going to get rid of half of their manual processes and everyone's going to be happy. Well, that person that you just saved 50% of their job probably isn't going to be happy because they're going to start to panic that you're, are you going to get rid of them? What are you going to do with that 50% of their job? And they probably have a lot of pride in that work too. It's probably something they've done for a long time. So you've got to figure out what that future state organization is going to be, what roles and responsibilities are. Um, and then I guess a bonus one, even though I, I only said there were three, I'll give you a fourth bonus one. That would be the the training and adoption strategy. Um, so just making sure you've got a clear plan and approach to how you are going to train and, and get people to adapt to the, the new technology. So those are a few of them that come to mind that I would say every change strategy should typically have. And we have a variety of resources if you want to actually look at those. Um, we have our, our guide to change management um, on our thought leadership section in the website. We'll drop a link here, as well as all of Eric's change management materials on his YouTube channel, um, which are incredibly popular. So definitely check those out if you do have specific questions, but an important and very good question. Okay. Well, this is a good one. I was hoping we would get to this one today because I actually don't know the answer to it. So I'm excited. So this person on your TikTok channel asked, um, are cloud solutions usually quicker to change or integrate with a larger network in emerging technologies like artificial intelligence? Ooh, great question. Um, I'll take a stab at it. That, that is actually a difficult question. Um, I would say yes, partly because vendors are investing much more heavily in R&D for their cloud solution. So by just by definition, they're going to be more innovative and more, there's more R&D going into the cloud solutions, but also because when you have cloud solutions, um, this is actually something that I learned on this podcast, believe it or not. It's something I learned from Brad Feeks, who is a 
repeat guest or repeat offender, if you will. He's been on the show, I think, two or three times. He's from Mestis Group. I don't recall which um, which episode it was, but uh, he he was on a couple times. And one of the things he talked about, I recall, was that cloud makes it easier to do stuff like AI because you have more centralized access to data. So when you're when you're pulling, you know, you're accessing information in the cloud and you're using the latest and greatest technologies, you're just by nature getting more data and better data, higher volumes of data that then makes AI and machine learning more palatable or more more effective, I should say. So I would say for the most part, yes, for those two reasons, I think you could pick either of those reasons, but certainly the two reasons combined would suggest that yes, cloud systems are going to be more innovative when it comes to AI and other emerging technologies for sure. Excellent. Well, good. We learned something today from you. So thank you for that. And then if you missed Brad Feeks on ground control, um, we'll pop a link to his interview. Um, he's been on it like, uh, like Eric said, I think three times now, actually, I think he's Probably. a three Peter. Um, I think he is. He's, he's one um, of just a couple people that have been on that many times. I know. I know. Him and so Marcus we'll, Harris. Yeah. We'll tag him here too. So you can follow all his, th his thought leadership, um, as well. So let's wrap up with this question because it's kind of a big one. Um, and it goes along with last week's episode. How can you ensure you own your data slash intellectual property in a digital transformation? Ooh, um, speaking of Marcus Harris, who <laughs> he's, he's an attorney and he's a, he's a IP, he does software stuff, but he also does IP and data security is a big thing that he focuses on. He'd be a great person to ask that of, but I think the, there's a contractual piece of it, of course, where you want to have confidentiality and you need your software vendor and your implementer partners to abide by that data privacy and protection and cybersecurity, whatever cybersecurity protocols you have. Um, but beyond that, you know, I think the other thing is most of these ERP systems are fairly tight from a cybersecurity perspective. Not to say they can't get hacked, but they're typically going to be tighter than most homegrown systems or most legacy, you know, older systems. But that's not usually the challenge. The bigger risk with cybersecurity is going to be a couple of things. One is it the third-party systems that bolt onto that ERP system. So that's where you really have to be careful is making sure that you don't have a security breach with the bolt-on. And there's been some pretty significant, massive cybersecurity breaches over the years that have involved a third-party bolt-on, not the core system itself, but the core system itself had a breach because of that third-party bolt-on. So that's one thing. And then the other is you have to look at not the not just the hackers that people worry about. I think when people think cybersecurity, they think someone from the outside is going to hack into my system and steal stuff. The risk that's just as big, if not bigger, is your your own employees, not because they necessarily want to steal data, although they could. It's more because you don't have the right security in place and the data is not locked down or protected. So you have too many people accessing and editing or manipulating or sharing data that they they shouldn't. And it's that's probably the bigger challenge. So that's more of a business process and workflow sort of thing and a software configuration sort of thing, but uh, definitely something you have to be aware of and mindful of. Well, good question. And if, if you missed um, last week's episode, Eric does go over clients' rights and responsibilities, talks a lot about the importance of contracting and the SOW and understanding that um, as well. So if you missed that, definitely head back to last week's episode to hear that kind of full overview of how you ensure that you are in a good spot and that, you know, you're in a, a healthy relationship with your, your vendor for sure. So yeah, absolutely. With that, thank you for answering all of our, our um, questions, Eric. Um, I want to take you through a few I didn't really things. have much of a choice, did I? I didn't know it was optional. <laughs> no, it wasn't. 
Yeah. I was just trying to be polite and yeah, force you I appreciate to do that. that. No. <laughs> So let's talk a little bit about some hot topics that are happening in the software emerging technology um, industry. So there's a new artificial intelligence that can realistically replicate voices. And it's raising a lot of concerns, speaking of cybersecurity, in the cybersecurity world for enterprise technology. And so this was actually a bigger news story um, in the U.S. this week on some mainstream media platforms where they gave an example of how this works. So um, Leonardo DiCaprio, who's an international movie star, right, he gave an acceptance speech and the software actually makes him sound like Steve Jobs and then Robert Downey Jr., and then President Joe Biden here in the United States. So there's a variety. And he, I mean, to me, right, he sounds just like them. So in in thinking about how that might be used in a, a business scope, obviously there's lots of lens um, of a human voice that now we create some distrust within the overall functionality to do that. Uh, so, you know, what's your reaction to that or some considerations, some concerns around enterprise security and that type of thing with that new functionality? Yeah, I mean, it's it's definitely, a, it's kind of freaky, you know, because you think about phone a phone call you might get that you think is someone, you you think you clearly recognize their voice, but it's not necessarily them. That's, that's kind of creepy to think about, um, especially in cases where you already have like within an enterprise, you, are, you already have phishing attempts and things like that. And now if you add the ability to replicate someone's voice somehow and make it a phone call to someone to say, hey, this is Kyler and I want you to, um, you know, turn off all the YouTube videos on our YouTube channel. Um, <laughs> you could probably do that. You could probably make it sound like it's Kyler asking someone on the marketing team to do that. Um, so that's the one thing that comes to mind. It also, you know, taking it a step further um, beyond the the voice replication um, there is a TikTok um, channel. I think it's called Deep Tom Cruise, and it's just spelled D E E P Tom Cruise. And it's for a long time I fell into this hoax. I, speaking of hoaxes, which we're going to get to later in the show, it's not really a hoax, but it's brilliant marketing. It, it's a video or it's a channel that's Tom Cruise, and I thought it was actually Tom Cruise. I mean, it looks and sounds just like him. It's actually pretty funny, and so I like. I actually really like the channel, and so I was following it and. Every time you put a new video out, I'd see it and I like it. And and then I found out though that it's not really Tom Cruise. It's a software, an AI software company that Tom Cruise is somehow affiliated with. I think he's an investor in it. And they he they have his permission to use his likeness. And they somehow act they have another actor who's doing stuff and it looks and sounds exactly like Tom Cruise like twenty years ago, exactly like how he did during the call it the nineties, you know, the Jerry Maguire era or whatever. Um it's it's fascinating. So anyway, it's you could take it a step further and then have a video, you know, do a, a fake video, um, a Teams call or a Zoom call with a fake video that says, hey, this is Eric, I need you to do something stupid and you're going to do it because it's me asking or whatever. Um, so I don't know. I don't know. I don't have a good answer for you or I don't know how to solve that problem, but that certainly opens up a lot of potential hacking and, and uh, nefarious uses of AI for sure. Definitely. That ethics conversation. I feel like we need a code word or something like that, um, you know, to make sure that it's it's definitely definitely us in talking. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah, like a yeah, so, password, passcode or I something. I know, right? Or something only you would know. It reminds me of the 
the Captain Marvel movie where the enemy, quote unquote, they can change to look like any other person. So anytime you saw them, you had to ask like, what was something I said to you at this moment in time to know that that was not your enemy. So we, who knows? That's where the world's going, I guess. But <laughs> Crazy, crazy times we're in. I know, right? Let's talk about, um, let's switch gears a little bit and talk a little bit about um, the evolution of technology and specifically in the food and beverage global industry. And what we've seen as a big trend emerging is loyalty programs and utilizing technology to engage with customers when they might not be in your restaurant or in your storefront. Um, I want to give you some examples of this and then get your reaction to that. Um, so just to give you some data, as I always like to do, uh, a 2022 global customer loyalty report found that nearly 90% of respondents trusted customer loyalty programs to help them overcome the inflation crisis and any sort of potential recession. So it's definitely been something that has been successful. Um, a, a example of this is called Rewards Arcade, um, and it's the loyalty program of KFC in the UK and Ireland. Um, and they invite customers who spend a certain amount in their app um, or on their website to play mini games. So a gamification of interacting with the, the brand while they wait for their food. Uh, the games are super simple, very, you know, kind of mind numbing games. And they have prizes, which include free menu items. Uh, and then another example of that gamification is Starbucks. And they've really taken it to the next level and utilizing NTFs. Um, they call it Starbucks Odyssey, and it's an extension of its existing loyalty program. And in this process, members can earn NTF art by completing different activities or coffee challenges um, and unlock those exclusive perks. Similar to that, brand experience has obviously been a huge um, initiative in engaging technology in these different industries. Um, an example of that is a Canadian sports bar. It's called La Cage, which it has tiered member loyalty ship programs. So you can do pro, elite, very similar to a sports team. Um, and they feature free deals um, and promotions with every, with every um, purchase. Uh, so it's really boosted their ability to interact with their customers. Um, again, when they're not in um, in store. So the the question about this is the integration of a loyalty program or loyalty tech within their technology stack. So utilizing either a, a an additional bolt-on application that they actually build, or these very high emerging SaaS-based loyalty vendors that come in and actually show the no-code or low-code options. Um, so it. it in this specific report, they recommended that this should be now part of the evaluation when looking at new technologies for food and beverage industries. So being the expert that you are, especially with our, our deep roots in food and beverage for our client work, wanted to get kind of your reaction to some of those case studies. Yeah, they're great case studies. And it's a good reminder of how important it is to look at your entire breadth of needs, not just what you have today or what your current systems can do, but also looking to, you know, how can we leverage technology to do things better than we have in the past? It's also a couple other things come to mind. It's also a reminder that best of breed, you know, multiple systems is not a terrible thing that that can actually be very 
helpful to have multiple systems that specialize in certain things or do things better than other technologies. Um, that's one thing. And then another thing is also looking outwardly um, in a digital transformation. What I mean by that is oftentimes organizations get so hung up on their internal processes and efficiencies and all that stuff that they forget about the customer experience and brand loyalty and things like that that you just described. And so if you really want to change your business and really take your business to the next level and get the most value you possibly can out of a digital transformation, you need to look at not only the internal efficiency gains and effectiveness gains you can get from traditional technology, but also look to more customer facing or customer experience types of uh, technologies as well, as well as the same for employees too. Anything you can do to provide a better employee experience and whatnot can, can be helpful as well. Absolutely. Definitely. Well, great case studies. I, I would be curious to turn to our audience and see if anyone has an experience with uh, loyalty tech or has found a platform that works well for your network. Um, if you do, just drop that in the comments or share your experience. We always appreciate our user-generated case studies. And I know um, Eric is going to have a conversation around industry hoaxes and how to really ensure that you understand and lift the veil on different industry trends or vendor sales tactics. So it's just something to keep in mind when you are working with any sort of third party um, to look at technology for your organization. Yep. And that's a, <clears throat> excuse me, that's a good segue into the the next segment. And the reason I, I wanted to do this is partially because um, I did a YouTube video a long time ago, like before, before I actually had them professionally done back when I was setting up a phone on my desk pointing at a whiteboard and I would just hit record and go start talking and had no one edit it. Um, that's how far back this goes. So it's like four years ago, I did a whiteboard video about top 10 industry hoaxes. And I thought it'd be kind of fun to refresh that list, but also have more of a discussion with the audience around what some of those hoaxes are. And the reason we do this is because the industry, the software and technology industry is really good at marketing. They have really good marketing messaging. They have really good sales messaging. They built really strong ecosystems. And that strength and ecosystem in marketing can overwhelm and create misconceptions and misunderstandings and unrealistic expectations and things that contribute to failures in the marketplace. So that's a big part of why we wanted to, or why I wanted to have this conversation. So we're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we're going to have that conversation about some of the top hoaxes that I see in the industry, but I also am going to ask the audience what you see as well. And if you disagree with some of my hoaxes, I want to hear that too. So they're trying to get a a spirited conversation goes. So we'll take a quick break. We'll be right back with more Transformation Ground Control. Interested in working for a company that truly values your unique skills and experience? Here at Third Stage, we don't hire based on resumes alone. We look at the full candidate, experience, and willingness to provide excellent service for our clients. Within a technology independent and agnostic consulting firm, you have the opportunity to learn across industries with a diverse group of clients. Our consultants also have the opportunity to diversify their portfolio and learn across technology systems. If you're interested in joining a high growth entrepreneurial organization, please reach out to us at work at thirdstage-consulting.com. Hello, welcome back to Transformation Ground Control, episode number 112. You can find new episodes of the show every Wednesday on YouTube, LinkedIn, Facebook, Twitter, as well as audio podcast platforms throughout the world. Thank you for being here today. 
I'm here with Kyler Cheatham as always. And what we'd like to do now is shift gears and talk about hoaxes in the technology industry and really lift back the curtain or look beneath the curtain or behind the curtain of what some of these challenges are and what some of these misleading sales and marketing tactics are within the industry, not to poke fun at or to give a hard time to the industry incumbents that are creating these false messages, but to more importantly, provide clarity and visibility to buyers, you know, people that are either buying technology or about to go through a transformation. These are the things you need to know. And so we're, we want to open these things up or expose some of these hoaxes so that you can see past them and take it all with a grain of salt. Um, so with that all being said, let's jump into the conversation. So what I'm going to do is I, I've got a, a sort of a starting point list of some of the things that grate my nerves, if you will. They're, these are the things that that are triggers for me as far as when I hear these things that I, I don't believe them to be true uh, or at best they're misleading. They're not 100% true and there's a dark side to some of these statements. So that's what I've done is I've started a, a starting point here and I'd love to hear uh, everyone's feedback on this. And I'm just going to go through these in, in no real particular order. And again, as, as you have comments or if you think of things, I'd love to hear what your thoughts are as, as we get going here on this conversation. So just to start, I'm going to um, pick pick one industry hoax that has been around for a long time. And it's something that's extremely, extremely misleading. And it's something that, in my opinion, mismanages expectations for digital transformations. And it's, it's one of these things that sounds really good. It's kind of what we want to hear when we buy technology or when we invest in technology. But it's something that if we believe too much in this, it's going to lead us down a path of really bad decisions, lost or, or misguided expectations. And it's not going to allow us to be effective. And that concept is industry best practices. That's that's one of the hoaxes that um, I feel like has been around for a long time. And it's, again, a really good sales message. Uh, whoever thought of this term is brilliant. I will give them credit for that because it it takes away, it, it, it's a concept that suggests that we can take away the risk of configuring and deploying a technology to meet our specific needs. And so if we think about best practices, what typically the way software vendors will sell or position industry best practices is they'll position it as something that provides sort of out of the box capability that provides industry processes that will allow you to start using the software right away. And there's a couple of problems with that concept. Although again, on the surface, it sounds great and it's sort of what we want to hear as humans and as decision makers. But the problem with that is twofold. One is that in any given industry, first of all, there are a lot of different variations on how you can do basic business processes. And in any given industry, we're all trying to compete. We're all trying to be better than our peers. We're trying to do something different. We're trying to be uh, grow our business in a way that develops competitive advantages and builds our core competencies in a way that's better than our competitors. So to suggest that there's industry best practices in that if you use our software or use software vendor A, B, or C um, to provide those best practices, that's misleading because what's best practice to one organization is probably not best practice to another organization. And uh, that's, that's the first part. The second part is that if you really think about it, industry best practices, you have to think about what are, who, who's to decide what best practices are. There's no universal global standard for what an industry best practice is for say chemical manufacturing. What industry best practices really are, in my opinion, is it's the way that that software vendor has chosen to build their software for that industry doesn't mean it's best, doesn't mean it's bad either, 
but it doesn't mean it's best practice. It doesn't mean it's going to work for your business. And uh, that's something to be aware of. And I think the, the challenging part here is that it leads you to think that if I deploy this software, I'm not going to have to go through the messiness and the hard work of rolling out my sleeves and defining what I want to be when I grow up and defining how I want the software to work, defining how I want to configure the software. All that stuff takes time and effort. And industry best practices is a concept that is meant to downplay or minimize that activity. And to me, again, that's very uh, risky to, to believe in that because it's just not true. You have to build the software in a way that supports your business. And again, there is no such thing as best practices. So I'd love to hear your thoughts on this too. Um, if you've heard of, you know, if you've heard this concept before, if, if you believe in it, do you believe that there is such a thing as industry best practices? Um, have, have you seen it work? Have you seen it backfire? I'd love to hear your, your thoughts here as it relates to, to best practices. Um, I also want to turn to the audience too, and thank, uh, those of you that have dropped so far dropped in the chat where you're joining from today. Um, we have Ryan from Denver, um, OT from, uh, I'm not sure where OT is from actually, um, Redu from India. Thank you. Thank you for being here so far. And thank you for dropping in the chat where you're, where you're joining from today. But again, I'd love to hear from the audience, uh, your thoughts and comments on what your thoughts are of industry best practices, or if you have any follow-up questions related to that. So that's something to be aware of is when you hear industry best practices, which you probably will hear if you haven't already, if you're out shopping for software or evaluating potential software systems, chances are pretty high you're going you're gonna to hear this term. Now, one caveat I'll throw in here too, one last thing I'll mention about industry best practices before we move on is that I think the exception to this would be if, if you're looking at a solution that is highly focused on, say, a certain industry vertical, or it's a solution that's focused on a certain functional vertical, like a, a human capital management system or a sales and CRM system, supply chain system, warehouse management, whatever the case may be, one of a best of breed focus solution like that, then this comment or this hoax is less of a problem because chances are higher that that highly specialized or highly focused solution is going to actually have a number of, I still can't use the word best practices with a straight face, but something closer to best practices, or at the very least it has robust capability and a lot of depth and breadth within a certain area that gives you the flexibility to determine or, or to deploy a solution that fits your needs in your business and your specific area. So that is the one caveat I'll say, but certainly when you're looking at an enterprise wide technology, like an ERP system, and you hear the term industry best practices, you really want to call BS on that because there is no such thing as industry best practices. And that gets into the whole debate too of, you know, for example, if I'm looking at SAP, Oracle and Microsoft, they all have best practices, but they're all totally different systems. So what is the best practice? And I think that sort of answers the question right there is there are no best practices. It's just the way that the software was built and the way that that vendor thinks best practices should be. And then one, one last thing too, is a lot of times when you challenge industry best practices and you, you question, are these really best practices or how do you know these are best practices? A lot of times it's met with sort of a dismissive response. Like you just need to be open to change. If you don't like our best practices or you don't think these are actually best practices is not the software's fault. It's your fault because you can't adapt to new technology. And that's certainly a problem as well. In my opinion, is, is, uh, you know, when buyers go through that process, that's the last thing you, you want to hear is that, uh, that you're the problem or that you're refusing to change. And you certainly want to be aware of resistance to change. That is a problem for digital transformations in general, but, uh, typically that's not the real problem when there's questions around, around best practices. So 
curious to hear your thoughts around uh, best practices and what your your thoughts are here. And then sort of along these same lines, I'm actually going to get to a comment here that's related to uh, best practices. This is from William on YouTube. William says, feature exaggeration is common in SaaS land sales. Same with ease of use and implementation. So that's a, a great point when you, you oftentimes are going to get an overly exaggerated view of software when you're getting demos or when you're talking to a software vendor. And if you think about it, that's their job. Their job is to highlight the strengths of their product and convince you that the product is worthy of your investment. And you can't fault anyone for doing that. That's their job. And I'm not faulting anyone for that. And I'm also not faulting anyone for really highlighting and and focusing on the strengths of the product and the features and the abilities and that sort of thing. But again, I think the problem is probably unintentional, although in some cases it may be intentional depending on the type of salesperson that you're dealing with. But in most cases, I think it's unintentional, but it does create unrealistic expectations and it creates a false sense of confidence in, in a certain product when you talk about industry best practices or when you're talking about features and capabilities, which you'll often uh, focus on during a, during a software vendor. So that's a great point, William. Thank you for that. So I want to uh, cover another uh, topic here that is common, sort of a, a common hoax or problem in the industry in terms of how software is sold. And that is the concept, especially if you're looking at ERP systems, we were just talking about that a moment ago. When you're talking about ERP systems, another problem or another common hoax is the message that a single ERP system can address all of an organization's needs. And again, this gets back to the similar thread that we were just talking about with industry best practices here with positioning ERP systems as the silver bullet to solve all of an organization's problems. Again, this is a sales rep's job. That's their job is to convince you that you should use an enterprise-wide technology. And there typically are significant benefits to deploying ERP systems in general. Um, there is an integrated, it, it is an in integrated platform typically. Um, typically it's one user interface and one system that people have to access now instead of multiple systems. You have a single source of truth with that ERP system. Uh, there's a lot of a lot of benefits. So I'm not suggesting that there isn't merit in implementing ERP systems or that there isn't business value in ERP systems, but where ERP systems become a problem is when you're convinced that it can handle all of, all of your needs and you start to force fit it into areas of your organization that it doesn't belong. So just to give you a couple examples, a lot of times when we, we have clients who are implementing ERP systems, ERP systems are generally pretty good at financial and accounting, inventory management, customer service, order management. Uh, basic supply chain, warehouse management, sort of your your core business processes, those vanilla business processes that are pretty common across industries and common across organizations. But where ERP systems get strained is when you start to look at sort of the edge of the organization. And by the edge of the organization, I don't mean parts of the business that aren't important, quite the contrary. I'm suggesting these are edges of the organization that are either unique to a certain industry, unique to that business. It's a highly specialized business process. That's where you start to see problems and some examples of where you commonly see challenges with ERP systems ability to address business needs. Uh, one would be something like product lifecycle management, um, CRM, you know, sales, sales and uh, sales automation and, and customer relationship management. Oftentimes ERP systems don't do CRM really well. They have CRM modules and they have PLM modules for product lifecycle management. 
but oftentimes those modules aren't as good as a specialized system that you might go out and buy and bolt onto a core ERP system. But again, of course, the, the sales rep's job is to convince you that you should use that core ERP system for all of your organization, even if it waters down some of the capabilities or some of the needs you have. And of course, that's a whole nother discussion, a whole nother point of debate or challenge is, is it better to have a single ERP system that ties everything together, that's easier to deploy, but doesn't give you the capabilities you need across the board? Or is it better to go find more of a best of breed or find those selective bolt-ons that give you better capabilities and maybe you're a better match for your, your business needs and, and uh, potentially provide greater value, but now you've created integration issues and complexity that you have from an architecture perspective. And that's an age-old debate that only you know you can answer. And every organization typically will have different criteria they use to come to a, a consensus on what the right answer is for them. And there is no right or wrong answer. I mean, I can I can debate both sides of that equation or that debate all day. But the key though is to understand that chances are pretty high that if you're deploying a single ERP system, you're going to be leaving functionality and capabilities on the table, and you're probably not going to get what you want across the board. You might get 70 or 80 percent of what you want, but then the question becomes, and the controversy centers on that 10 to 20 to 30 percent of the organization that can't effectively be addressed by that core ERP system, which then, by the way, leads to organizational change, resistance, and um, other issues during implementation. Not the end of the world, not something you can't deal with, but that is a challenge that, that comes along with that. So I think it's just a matter of, again, you know, seeing through the sales messaging of the feeling or, or creating the feeling that you have to have one ERP system. And if you don't have one ERP system, you're just creating a mess. Now you don't have a single source of truth. Now you've created all this uh, complexity. Yes, you have. That is true. But if it creates enough business value to justify that risk and to justify that potential downside, then it's absolutely uh, potentially worth it. So I think you just have to look at, you know, what your needs are and what specific systems you, you might be looking at um, in general. So, that's something to be aware of too. I want to get to some comments that are coming in on the on the stream here. Um, here's a here's a comment from Mike on LinkedIn. Has, a, has an interesting comment here. Uh, the size of the business and the business process maturity are critical. Business running on Excel and Google Sheets need the best practices. They need the functionality and follow these standard best these standard business processes, especially in financials and. Uh, warehouse you just mentioned. So it sounds like you're saying that if you're on, say, a really immature system, whether it be Microsoft Excel, Google Sheets, or maybe it's an old ERP system, mainframe system from 20 or 30 years ago, whatever the case may be. Let's say you're on really old technologies and there's a big jump between where you are today and where you could be if you had better technologies. I think there is something to be said about quote unquote, best practices that get introduced to the organization as a result. And I think software can introduce potential process improvements. Um, so I think this is a really good discussion or a good point of clarification. I think obviously technologies, the intent and the whole reason we, we deploy technologies is to improve our business processes. So I do agree with that. Technology should and could absolutely deliver business process improvements. But I think that the delineation I would call out is that process improvement is different than best practices. Best practices suggest that there's some universal answer to what the best process is for any given workflow or function. And that's just simply not true. Now it may be true to more, to more so for 
really vanilla processes. So you think about something that's a vanilla common process and it's not a core differentiator or a competitive advantage to you as an organization. And a real maybe extreme example would be something like accounts payable. Uh, most organizations aren't competitive or better than their peers because they pay their invoices faster. That's typically not a core competitive advantage that organizations are striving for, but it's something that you can typically adapt a little bit easier to whatever the software can and can't do. Accounts payable might be a good example of an area where you're more willing to compromise or to change to fit the software because it's not a core part of your business or it's not a core competitive advantage. But if you're talking about something more customer facing or something that is uh, involving your product, the way you configure your product, the way you manufacture the product, um, the cost advantage you might have related to your, your uh, manufacturing, for example, those are areas where best practices are probably not going to fit and it's going to strain the concept of best practices. So I think, you know, there's a, it's important to differentiate between business process improvements and where maybe some light best practices might be relevant or more relevant versus those parts of your business that you really want your unique needs to be front and center. And you need to find the technology and make the technology fit your business rather than assuming you're just going to change your business to fit the software. So different parts of your business might have different answers too. There's usually not one answer for an entire organization. You have to be a little bit more targeted in, in how you approach that. So that's a, that's a great point that you, that you bring up here. We're here chatting about some of the leading industry hoaxes within the technology space. We've got a lot more to cover. We'll be right back with more Transformation Ground Control. Are you looking to stay ahead of the curve in the ever-changing landscape of digital transformation? Then you need our newly released 2023 Digital Transformation Report. This comprehensive report covers the latest trends, technologies, and strategies to ensure your digital transformation is optimized for success. The 2023 Digital Transformation Report is packed full of proven methodologies and insights from experts in the independent digital transformation field. You'll also receive practical insights on how to implement digital transformation strategies within your unique organization. This free report is available for download on our website at thirdstage-consulting.com under our thought leadership section. Hello, welcome back to Transformation Ground Control, episode number 112. Thanks for being here today. We're having a conversation about industry hoaxes and what you can do to take those hoaxes with a grain of salt. So here's a, a comment from Kyler on LinkedIn who says, similar to the conversation from last week, um, and I honestly don't remember what the conversation was last week, but on this, we do this live stream every week. Last week, we talked about something related to this, apparently. Uh, I think it's important to remember that the organization must know their needs, not the not the needs that the vendor wants you to have. It's a great point. And, and it's a, it's certainly a balancing act where yes, you want to look to technology and the capabilities of technologies to give you ideas on how you might improve your processes. But again, there's certain parts of your business that are probably high value. They're probably very mature. They're probably very fine tuned and you've developed these parts of your business over decades of building that competitive advantage to now say, okay, we're going to abandon that and just go with best practices or go with the way the software is built. That's, that's a highly destructive and dangerous way of approaching di uh, digital transformation. Um, and again, there are certain parts of your business where that may be relevant, where you may say, yes, we're just going to 
compromise and adapt to whatever the software can do in these areas. But these areas over here, these are too important. These are areas we don't want to touch. This is our secret sauce. This is what we've spent decades building in terms of competencies. We need the software to adapt to that. So I think it's really important to prioritize your processes and have a good self-awareness of what the, the most important parts of your business are. Here's another interesting comment from Mike on LinkedIn. Mike says the ERP slash CRM should sit in the center. Those functionalities need to be filled with low code, no code tools. I'm a Microsoft, I am a Microsoft Dynamics person. So the power platform fills this gap completely. It's well said. I think that's a common, whether you're using the Microsoft platform or other platforms, by the way, I think recognizing that you have a lot of options and how you mix and match and pull together different technologies to fit your needs. ERP, I agree. ERP is great for kind of your core, your core back office functions, the financial management, accounting, GL, inventory management, order management, that sort of stuff. ERP is generally really good at. Um, it's really, you know, I think the, the way to look at it is when you look at your organization, what industry you're in, you think about one thing to think about is how are business processes different in our industry? And those are more likely to strain or create tension with what a core ERP system can do if you're looking at an enterprise-wide uh, system. Here's a really interesting uh, comment uh, from YouTube. This is from Rufus on YouTube. And Rufus says, good day, dear sir. Good day to you too, dear sir. Um, I run a small digital transformation consulting firm and SAP product implementation, among others. And I do think the advances in AI will spell the doom of ERP. The question is just when. Really interesting comment. I'd love to hear your, your um, I'd love to hear more about that. Why you think or how you think AI will spell the end of ERP. Um, because that's actually something I've been thinking about a lot lately is how will, how will AI and how will chat GPT and some of these other uh, booming technologies, how will they affect ERP technology services like what we do um, at third stage consulting? I've been just dwelling on that stuff a lot lately. So I'd love to hear your thoughts on how you think AI will um, spell the doom of ERP. Or if you disagree with Rufus, I'd love to hear your, your counterpoints as well. So, um, and Kyler just reminded me of, of last week's live stream topic. Um, if, you, if you missed last week, I talked about clients' rights and responsibilities. Now I remember that. That is indeed what we talked about. So thank you, Kyler, for keeping me on track here. And, and Kyler's included a link. If you're on LinkedIn, she's included a, a link to that video from last week's um, live stream. So um, I want to get to another one here. Thank you for all the comments, by the way. These are really interesting and good ones. Um, I'm going to get to one that I, I'm pretty sure is going to trigger at least one person listening and watching. I don't know who it is, but at least one person will highly likely be triggered by this. And that is cloud is cheaper than on-premises systems. Um, this is one that really bothers me. And it's one that I debate often in the industry because it is probably the, this is probably the most controversial topic or the one that I debate the most. And I think this is probably the one comment or belief I have that irritates the vendor community more than anything else I say or do, um, which there's plenty of things I say and do that irritate the vendor community at times. But this is probably the biggest one. And that is this concept or the sales message that if you deploy cloud solutions, it's cheaper than on-premises systems. And I'll, I'll uh, start by saying, yes, that's true. But 
that's the way I'd sort of start the answer. I'd say, yes, it's true at first. Your initial costs are generally cheaper, not implementation costs. I, I highly disagree that implementation costs of cloud solutions are cheaper because they're typically not. What typically ends up happening is, yes, the software itself is easier to access because you don't have to install it on servers. You don't have to manage it within your four walls of your IT department. But in implementing and deploying technology a majority of the heavy lifting and the work and the heartburn and the risk and the cost and the resource commitment comes from not the technology deployment. It's from your process improvement, from the change management, from getting business value out of the technology and just adapting to the software. That stuff isn't any better or any more automated because you're deploying cloud technology. In fact, I would argue that the amount of time that's saved on the technological side of having a cloud solution that is is easier to deploy purely from a technological perspective, that benefit is outweighed by the fact that it's harder for organizations to adapt to cloud solutions typically, because you typically have less flexibility. Now, of course, I'm talking more about SaaS and multi-tenant cloud solutions, um, those subscription-based models where you can't customize the software to fit your needs. You can configure it, but you can't customize it. That just makes change management more difficult and it makes the adoption to the new software more difficult. So I'd say it's at best a wash. The, the amount of time and money you save on deploying the technology may be a little bit faster, but that's going to be countered by the fact that the organization's adoption of that cloud technology is going to be more difficult. It might absolutely deliver more business value long term. I'm not talking about business value here. I'm talking about pure cost. So if I look at cost, even when I factor in the servers that I don't have to invest in anymore, um, the IT staff that I might not need to uh, maintain. Yes, I'm gonna. There's gonna be some savings there, but typically that savings is outweighed by the fact that now you're paying a higher ongoing subscription cost. So those subscription costs make it easier to get into the new software. So you don't have that big capital spend like you might have had in the past with the, the old on-premises model. But now with cloud solutions, yes, you have a lower entry point, but now you've got an ongoing subscription that never goes away. It's sort of like, it, it reminds me a lot of leasing versus buying a car. When you buy a car, you're spending more money up front and, um, but eventually your payment goes away. If you're financing it, you're going to, your payment's going to go away after five years or whatever it is. When you lease a car, you're just always going to have that payment. The lease payment's lower, but it goes on into perpetuity. And the other part of this too, that you have to remember is where does this message come from? The cloud is cheaper and why are vendors so interested in cloud? Why do they push it so hard? I would argue that it's not because cloud technology is any better, although there are definite advantages to cloud systems. There's there's uh, the ongoing R&D, the upgrades are easier. Um, you're getting, you know, immediate, you know, bleeding edge technologies that keep you at the forefront of technology. So there are absolutely benefits to that. Um, but if you think about where the messaging is coming from, it's coming from the fact that cloud subscription-based models are highly valued by technology companies and highly valued by investors. So investors that invest in SAP and Oracle and Microsoft, if you read their annual reports and you read the analysis of any sort of quarterly earnings report that comes from a software vendor, they are hyper-focused on that recurring subscription revenue because that's a lot more value to an investor than the on-premises model where it's a one-time one purchase and the vendor has to go out and continuously find new business to replace that revenue. Yes, they used to have like the ongoing maintenance. They would have their 15 or 20% of subscription that would be the ongoing maintenance, but that's not nearly as attractive or lucrative as that recurring subscription cost that goes into perpetuity. 
So investors love it. Vendors love it. They push it really hard as the best option and the only option for organizations. And therefore you get misleading messages like this, like you should be going to the cloud because you're going to save money. You're really not. You're going to, there are going to be some areas of cost savings, but there's going to be other areas that offset that. In fact, in some cases we see even the IT cost savings isn't as great as advertised in that you don't end up getting rid of staff to support a system. Now you end up hiring people because the system is more complex and there's more robust capabilities. And again, it could be that it's delivering more business value and the ROI makes total sense. I'm not disputing that because I think more organizations than not have a lot of potential to invest in cloud systems and get a really good ROI. But the problem is they go in thinking that they're going to save money when they're not. They're not really saving money. They're investing money. They're spending more money. They're shifting their spend from internal IT costs over to a managed service provider. So the costs are just shifting. You're not really saving money. And the idea or the goal is that you get enough business value or business benefits that justify that additional cost. That's that's more of the question that you really need to focus on with with cloud versus versus on-premises uh, solutions. So here's a, a follow-on I want to come back to you on the AI, AI causing the death of ERP systems from Rufus again on, on YouTube. And I think this is an interesting thing to dive into for a second. Rufus says, one could train a GPT-like model to handle classic data, data in, data out operations, typically handled by ERPs. ERPs allow us to tap into the company's data capital. AI models allow you to talk to it. So that's a really interesting uh, point or comment. Um, in fact, this is something we were talking about just internally. I was talking about this with our, our team in the UK yesterday um, around chat GBT and how that's affecting confidentiality of organizations that are going through um, implementations or they're, they're implementing technologies. And what, what they were saying or what the team was talking about was how there's certain consultants out there that are implementing, I think in this case, they were talking about SAP. They were implementing SAP and they were using, somehow they were putting information from SAP into ChatGPT. And what it was doing is it was making public domain, it was making confidential information, internal company information, it was making a public domain because now it's part of ChatGPT and it's in that open source model that anyone can access. So I thought that was a really interesting point in that there's some confidentiality and data security issues with ChatGPT and other you know, potential AI, especially the open source AI models. So I'd be curious to see over time if that somehow resolves itself or how organizations deal with the confidentiality. Um, I think in order for this trend to materialize that you mentioned with AI killing off ERP, I think you're going to have to somehow resolve that confidentiality issue, both in terms of the companies that are implementing technologies, but even the software vendors themselves. Um, you know, I imagine they're going to push back pretty hard or somehow find a way pr to protect their IP and, and whatnot. So uh, really interesting. I don't have any good answers or predictions for that. But that's a really interesting uh, debate or, or point of uh, discussion. Here's a here's a comment from YouTube. And the comment is, thank you for highlighting the importance of business process design and improvement. I've yet to see enough advances in this area, even having a centralized repository of user friendly processes. Uh, great point. And I think, uh, you know, if you if you step back and look at most organizations, maybe with the exception of the public sector and nonprofit sector, um, but other than the public sector, I'd say most organizations are focused on creating competitive advantage. How do they how do they create those differentiators? How do they create processes that allow them to win, to compete better, that sort of thing? 
that runs totally counter to this idea of industry best practices that everyone's going to use. If everyone in one industry followed the same processes, used the same technologies, you wouldn't have a competitive advantage. So it's it's a natural tension that you're going to have where organizations want to be different. They want to create that competitive advantage and uh, you know push it even further. So I, I agree the business process improvement is an area that's often underrated and the concept of industry best practices totally waters down and undermines the value of business process improvement because it makes you think that you don't need to do business process improvement and you don't need to be deliberate about it because you just use the software and the best practices and that is your business process improvement and that's highly just wrong it doesn't work except for those rare instances where you've got a vanilla process that's low value relatively speaking low value to the competitive advantage of the organization in those cases then maybe but most of the rest of the organization, you're not going to get the process improvements you want if you just rely on best practices uh, to be your guide. Um, I want to get to a really good hoax that was not on my list, but Kyler brings it up here. It's an awesome one. And I should have thought of this one, actually. Um, and that is you have to move to a new you have to move to a new system if your legacy solution is being sunset. And this is a great one. In fact, this is one of the most unhealthy things and the most unethical things I've ever seen in my career. And sometimes I still can't believe it's happening, but that is that you get software vendors that have provided you a certain software for however many years or decades. And let's use Microsoft as an example. They have Microsoft Great Plains as an example. They've Great Plains, is, I'm not here to d dispute or debate whether or not Great Plains is a good system or ever was a good system, um, but organizations that are on great plans have recently been told that they have to get off that system um, and they need to upgrade to presumably d365 which is the the current cloud version of microsoft's erp system and it's not just microsoft sap's doing the same thing with ecc they're sunsetting that product and saying we're not going to support it after whatever date i think it's 2027 and at that point you need to be on uh s4 hana sap s4 hana in order to get support if you think about it, it's highly, even though it, I suppose vendors have a right to do this, they're a legal right, I should say, you have to question the ethics of that. You know, organization like SAP or Microsoft that essentially are holding you hostage because you have your entire operations running on their system, all your data is in there. Um, you rely on that technology to run your business day to day, and they're essentially forcing you to rip that out and, and replace it, or at least that's the perception they're creating. And and so we get a lot of calls from clients. A lot of clients that contact us at third stage are in sort of a panic. You know, they they know they're they're looking down the barrel of a deadline and, and time's working against them because they know the product's going to be sunset. There's not going to be support. And I guess, you know, a couple things to the point here that Kyler makes is that when a vendor says that they're going to sunset a product, it's not the end of the world. Now, it's not ideal at all. I'm not suggesting just ignore it. But just because let's just say they say by 2027, no longer supporting that system. If you're using that system until 2028 or 2029 in some way, that's not the end of the world. Yeah, they're not going to support it. Yes, it's going to make things more difficult for you. But you have to look at the risk profile of that scenario versus the risk profile of rushing to re-implement a new system when you don't have the time or the resources or the budget or whatever. Um, that risk could actually be greater than just staying on the system or being a little bit more measured in how you go through your implementation. So a lot of times, you know, we have to advise our clients to just take a deep breath and slow down because not that you want to just ignore it, not that you want to move at a snail's pace, of course, but you don't need to rush, just jump straight off a cliff 
um, because a vendor tells you you've got to get off their system. Um, so I think you just have to be aware of that. Yes, you want a strategy long term to to navigate that. Um, personally, if I'm dealing with a vendor that tells me that I have to get off their system and I've got X amount of time to do it and I have to move to the cloud, um, I question the relationship with that vendor if that's the vendor I really want longer term. Um, but that's that's me and I know organizations are more complex than one decision maker like me. So that that's uh, something to keep in mind as well. So that's a great point. You don't have to you don't have to move off your legacy product just because the vendor tells you that you have to. Another one that I'll kind of throw in that's semi related to this. I almost added it to my list, but I didn't feel like it was worthy of an entire thread. But I'll sort of just add it to this one instead. That is the concept of technical debt. Um, that's a phrase that's a trigger for me. It, it's a it sort of grates my nerves. It's like nails on a chalkboard when I hear the word technical debt uh, because it's another manufactured term that's highly effective, brilliant term. Whoever thought of it, kudos to you for thinking of a great marketing term. But what it does is suggest to you that you're in debt and you have to get out of debt. If you, if you think about the human reaction to the word debt, you think debt's bad, I need to get out of debt. So technical debt suggests that whatever system I'm on, even if it's just a couple of years old or whether it's 20 or 30 years old, I'm in debt, I need to get out of it, I need to upgrade to something new. Um, so I, the reason I bring this up is that you don't have to be on the newest and greatest bleeding edge technologies. In fact, there's a lot of merit of not being on the bleeding edge. Um, we have one big client that has intentionally chosen to stay on Oracle EBS, for example. Um, they're, they're in the middle of a massive multi-year Oracle EBS implementation. Oracle tried to force them mid-implementation to move to Oracle Fusion Cloud or Oracle ERP Cloud, wherever they're calling it today. Um, and they chose not to. They said, no, we're, there's too much missing in the capabilities of the new cloud solution. We're going to stick with the older technology, knowing that it's older, knowing that we're going to have to replace it sooner, but knowing that it's mature, it handles our needs, and it's a better fit for our organization. So another great example of, of a client taking charge and doing what they need to do to run their business. And this is a very unique client, by the way. They, they are very self-aware. They're very confident. They don't fall victim to all this stuff I'm talking about here today. In fact, none of this would interest them. They, if they were on this call, they would say none of this is... None of this phases us because we know it's all BS and we're not going to fall for it. That's the sort of organization they are. Um, so that's those are just a couple examples of how you know how you want to be aware of that that hoax that that hoax that you need to be off your old system, whether it's because you're in technical debt or because you're being told by your vendor that the software is being being sunset. We're here chatting about some of the leading industry hoaxes within the technology space. We've got a lot more to cover. We'll be right back with more Transformation Ground Control. If you are involved in any sort of digital transformation or business change initiative, you will want to download the 2021 Digital Transformation Report. With its comprehensive overview of business and technology trends and best practices, this report is a must-have guide for any transformation project or executive team. Download this free report by visiting Third Stage Consulting at thirdstage-consulting.com. You can also visit our website to learn more about us or download independent reports, videos, and other best practices. Again, visit thirdstage-consulting.com today to learn how to take your transformation to the third stage of success. Hello, welcome back to Transformation Ground Control, episode number 112. Thanks for being here today. 
we're having a conversation about industry hoaxes and what you can do to take those hoaxes with a grain of salt. Oh, here's an interesting uh, point from uh, William again on, on YouTube. He says, a host, of a host of services companies are actively advertising that they will support SAP tech after sunset regarding S4HANA. A uh, great point, actually. I'm, I'm glad you said this because it, it further validates or further justifies the point I made before that we were just talking about with sunsetting products. Um, that is another option, and that's something that uh, a lot of there's a lot of tech companies that have built their entire business around providing third-party support. So companies like uh, Remini Street, I think it's called. Um, there's another one called um, Spinnaker uh, Support uh, that's actually based here in Denver, where Third Stage is consult where Third Stage Consulting is based, and where I'm based. Those are just two examples of third-party support organizations that provide at a lower cost support for some of these legacy products. And it's a great business model because you, you're always going to have these lagging organizations that are slower to move to newer technologies. But the good news is it creates an option for you. It gives you additional time. It gives you additional runway and breathing room if you do decide that you are going to take longer to deploy. Because if you think about it, these, these are artificial dates that the vendors have created. They just decided we don't want to invest any more R&D in these solutions. We want to put all our eggs in one basket of the newer product, which makes total sense from a business perspective from their side. But that doesn't mean that you need to pay the price and you need to be on that same page. You need to do what's best for your business. And if that decision is to stay on the system for longer, then third-party support options are certainly ones that you can look for, especially if you're using SAP, Oracle, Microsoft, um, Infor, you know, any of these, any of these bigger well-known brands are going to have third-party support options that um, might allow you to continue to stay on those systems if needed. And again, you compare that cost to the cost and risk of of moving potentially prematurely to a new system, and you might find that that's worth it. You may also find that it's not too, by the way. There's going to be organizations where that just doesn't make sense, and they should be on the newer system, um, in which case that that's okay too. It just depends on your, on your needs here. So I want to get to uh, one other one that's semi-related to what we were just talking about. Um, and that is, I was starting to talk about this with uh, the client that was implementing Oracle EBS. Oracle tried to convince them to go to Oracle uh, Cloud ERP. Client decides no, we're sticking with EBS. Reason for that is it leads to this other hoax, which is that cloud systems are mature and scalable. Um, highly, highly misleading comments that you'll see and hear in the industry with the exception of this, this comment, by the way, does not apply to native cloud solutions. So NetSuite, Salesforce, Workday, for example, those are three products that were built in the cloud. They've been in the cloud for 20 plus years. So their products are different. They, they've invested all the R&D dollars they've invested over decades are in that current solution that are our, that's already in the cloud. With other vendors like SAP, Oracle, Microsoft, Infor, Epicor, insert vendor name here, for most other software vendors that were built on premise with their initial systems, they've had to rewrite these systems to create entirely new versions of the software. And you simply can't rewrite that stuff overnight. If it took you 30 years of, of building capabilities on premises, you're not going to suddenly in just three or five or seven years convert all that over into a cloud solution. Now the vendors are getting closer, but there's still a lot of non-core ERP capabilities that are not mature and they're not ready for prime time. And that's where a lot of companies get into trouble 
is, for example, SAP customers. SAP is having massive problems with this where you have com- companies that are used to SAP ECC. They know what ECC can do, and they assume that S4HANA can do the same thing or maybe even better. And while S4HANA is introducing new capabilities that ECC did not have, there's some core basic functionality that S4HANA can't do that ECC could, not because they don't want S4HANA to do it, but just because they haven't developed it fully yet. So um, we've, we've just seen that too many times with SAP and other vendors too, where there's a misleading expectation or a faulty expectation that the cloud solution is going to be just as good or if not better than the, than the old legacy system. And again, while there's merits to these cloud systems, you have to recognize that there's downsides too, and that there's gaps there. So that's something to be aware of is that these newer cloud systems are not yet mature to the extent that on-premises systems were. I hope that this comment is obsolete very soon, you know, within the next couple of years. But as of right now, as we sit here in 2023, um, that, that maturity is not there yet, and which leads to scalability issues. When you've got a cloud system that can't handle your needs and your capabilities, that actually undermines the scalability of the software but yet cloud systems are sold as a more scalable solution than on-premises. So um, that's something to be aware aware of as well. And then related to that um, from LinkedIn, and I apologize, I can't see the name of the person that asked this, but this is from LinkedIn. Um, any thoughts why people choose to move to SAP S4HANA? Well, partially because SAP is forcing a lot of their ECC customers off of ECC. That's driving a lot of S4HANA sales, highly effective way to drive revenue, by the way, if you're a software vendor. Just tell the tell the lower margin on-premises customers that they have to stop using that software and they have to upgrade. Even if you lose a few customers along the way, you're still coming out way ahead because you're going to have so many customers that now are going to invest in the cloud solution. You're going to make more money even if you lose some of the customers to a competitor, which rarely happens if you think about it. Um, it's pretty rare that we see a customer going from, for example, SAP ECC to Oracle Cloud or Microsoft Dynamics. Uh, I know Oracle and Microsoft would love to see more of that, and as would other vendors that are competing for the same um, piece of the pie, but it's pretty rare. So I think it's a calculated gamble by vendors that you're going to do it. So I think a big reason why customers moved S4HANA is because SAP is forcing them. And, um, you know, it is a newer, sexier solution. It has a lot of cool machine learning and AI type stuff in there that the DCC didn't have or doesn't have. So there are potential upside benefits. And I think over time, it's going to be obvious that S4HANA is a better solution than ECC, but it's just not, we haven't quite, we haven't quite uh, crossed that, uh, crossed that point yet. It's a great, great point. So there's a question from Kuba in Poland. Thank you for joining all the way from Poland in the evening, your time. Thank you for being here. Um, Kuba's question is any takes on production specific systems? like MES or APS? Is AI being implemented into those areas? Greetings from Poland. So um, yes, so AI is being used more and more uh, for production specific systems. But I'd say to your point, it's being more in the context of those industry specific solutions. So MES, for example, stands for manufacturing execution systems. Those are the systems that automate the shop floor. It's, it's more the, the shop floor automation and the uh, machine learning and gathering data from robotics and different parts of the, the shop floor operations. That's that massive volume of data and that highly focused technology is ripe for AI. That's where AI really shines right now. With ERP systems, yes, AI is being introduced, but it's more like more of the real basic uh, parts of the business. For example, like PO processing, 
you're getting AI machine learning to figure out, you know, how to automate accounts payable processing and to kick out the exceptions to a human to take action or to intervene. So you are seeing AI in the ERP systems, but you're not seeing AI in the ERP systems around some of those really high value areas or higher value areas like manufacturing with MES. So I think, yes, you are seeing it, but I think you have to go with a, a to your point, a production specific or a functional specific software to really get, you know, some, some groundbreaking AI at this point, that'll, you know, become less true over time, but that's the way we see most of the industry right now. So here's another comment from Rufus. Um, I recently convinced a client to switch away from cloud to an on-premise because the support from the hosting provider wasn't up to specs. The ERP in question is Sage, which is not a, which is not a cloud native solution. So great point. I mean, you may find that the on-premise solution is a better fit, gives you more capability. In that case, you've got to go with it and figure out, you know, what you're going to do to manage the downside risk of the fact that you're using an older system. There may be more limited support. Yes, that's a risk. It's a cost you have to factor in. But again, if it's delivering enough business value, that might be justified. And you really have to look at the risk reward and the cost benefit of that scenario versus others where you, um, you know, where you, where you might not be able to justify investing in a more expensive um, technology. So uh, one, here's another um, hoax that, that's worth talking about here. Um, and this is a really common one. And that is our system can be deployed in X number of months, insert, you know, insert number here. Um, we sometimes get proposals that are just completely bizarre and unrealistic, you know, in terms of what a vendor is suggesting the technology can be deployed. If I had to pick on one vendor that's the most guilty of this most consistently, I'd say it's NetSuite. Um, NetSuite for as good of a product as it is, they, they really mislead customers in terms of how long it's going to take to deploy uh, in general. It doesn't always happen, but um, that is a, a more common system that leads to faulty expectations. And they have this concept of sweet success, which is a implementation methodology that they assure you, you can deploy the system in, you know, oftentimes 90 days or less. And for a small, really simple organization that might be somewhat achievable, but if you're a midsize or even a large organization, you're just not going to deploy uh, NetSuite in that amount of time. And, and I'm picking on NetSuite to some degree, but this is a universal problem with other vendors too where the system integrator or the software sales rep or both come in and say, we can deploy this technology in 12 months or 18 months, whatever it is. And typically whatever number you're given is really low and it's too low. The reason being is that they're selling you a concept of how to de deploy technology, which is different than going through a digital transformation and changing the way you do business and actually adopting and using the technology. That's a totally, those are two totally different paths. Yes, you can deploy technology as fast as you want, um, I don't disagree with NetSuite, Sweet Success, or any other vendor that says they can deploy technology in whatever amount of time. Chances are pretty high they, they could, but it's not going to be pretty, and it's not going to fit your needs, and it's not going to get used by your organization. It's not going to improve your business. It's not going to deliver business value. So it really depends on what you're trying to accomplish. If you're really trying to get business value in an ROI, which I would argue most organizations are or should, then you should be making sure you add some reality and add a grain of salt to that proposal that you get from a technology provider, because the technology provider is going to underestimate, not because they are intentionally misleading, but because their job is to give you sort of a best case scenario. And the last thing they want to do is create an expectation that it's going to take more time, more money than a competitor. 
So they're trying to sell you on the merits of their software and how quickly it can be deployed and how easy it is to use. And with that comes expectations that get misstated. And so you really have to look at every proposal we, I mean, just to back up, every proposal we see from from vendors that we're helping clients evaluate and negotiate with vendors, um, I can't remember the last time I saw one that looked at all realistic. I mean, most of the time, those proposals are completely understated, again, because they're focused on deploying technology, which is just one work stream within a digital transformation. When you talk about business process improvement, defining what you want to be when you grow up, redesigning your organization, defining your standardized business processes that you want to uh, conform to across a global organization, those are the things that take a lot of time. And that's what slows down a project. It's not the technology typically that slows it down, although it can. It's typically not the designing and building of the software that creates problems. It's all the other stuff. So it's all the other stuff you have to factor into your your overall transformation plan to have a to have a more realistic one. And then while I'm at it, I'll cover one other one that's really important is that nobody ever got fired for hiring, you know, insert big well-known name here. It could be SAP, uh, it could be Accenture, it could be Deloitte, um, IBM. PwC, you know, any of the big name software vendors and system integrators, there's a perception that it's safe. It's a safe bet to invest in or hire one of these big name vendors. And I, I'm so fascinated by this concept because I hear people say it fairly frequently that nobody ever got fired for, for choosing SAP. Nobody ever got fired for hiring Accenture. The problem with that is I can name a lot of people that have been fired. I've seen a lot of people lose their careers or get fired because they brought in SAP, they brought in Accenture, they brought in Deloitte, thinking that that was the silver bullet they were looking for. But I would argue that those options are just as risky and sometimes even riskier than a lesser known name where, um, you know, you think about a smaller vendor, a smaller software vendor or a smaller implementer, they have more to lose if they piss off a client or irritate a client or don't do a good job. They have more to lose to have a dissatisfied customer than a big name does. So sometimes those smaller mid-tier vendors try harder and they provide better service and better value than a big name that's going to be super expensive and may or may not deliver business value. So, um, and I say that as a former ex or as a former PwC or an ex-PwC consultant, I mean, I saw how much customers were spending on us. And quite frankly, we as an organization didn't care necessarily if someone got fired for hiring us, as long as we kept that company as a client, that's what we really cared about. So, um, so I wouldn't be, that's something else to be aware of too, is people do absolutely get fired for hiring some of the big names. I've, I've just seen too many failures and lawsuits in my time and, and too many terminated CIOs and CFOs. And even in some cases, CEOs get fired for, for disasters that happen with her, their tech deployment. So I, I definitely wouldn't be misled by that, by that comment either. Here's an interesting comment just to sort of continue to pull back the curtain of, of the industry and the inner workings of the industry. This is from Manikondon on LinkedIn. Manikondon says, as SAP services partners, you earn services revenue quicker as the cloud solutions are fit to standard. Unlike the classical implementation methodology of business blueprinting, customization, testing, user acceptance, testing, and training. It's a great point. Um, that's actually a really good, clear point and very straightforward to the point uh, comment. And that is that, you know, the, the economic incentive that vendors have and the service providers have is pro cloud because the vendors obviously generate revenue faster because the subscription model kicks in right away. 
and you're starting that meter running and that that goes on into per perpetuity as long as you're using the software. So they vendors love it. Um, service partners, yes, you get revenue quicker um, on the services side because you are uh, typically trying to implement faster. And that, that kind of goes with the whole agile thing, too, which is another another hoax that I, we didn't get to here today. But um, agile methodologies are a way to speed things up. But it, it, in my opinion, agile often leads to reckless acceleration of, a, of an implementation or transformation. But it helps it helps the service providers because they can bill more time and money um, sooner. And then also a lot of these service providers too, perhaps more importantly and more significantly, is they're making money or commission on the subscription revenue. So a lot of these service providers aren't just banking on providing you the services, they're banking on the fact that now they get a cut of this ongoing revenue into perpetuity. And usually, I don't know, I don't think they typically get paid commission into perpetuity, but they usually get paid for like three or five years for that, that subscription for the lifetime of that, you know, for that client. So they're making a lot of money on both sides. They're accelerating revenue on both sides, both the services side and the software side, which is, you know, money talks. Money is very powerful and money leads to some of the hoaxes that we're talking about here today. And that's, by the way, why we started Third Stage as an independent consulting firm, because we saw that that economic self-interest was leading to such poor behavior and such damaging, destructive behavior in organizations. And quite frankly, it's why there's so many failures in the digital transformation space. And it's why so many of these implementations fail is because expectations have been mismanaged because of economic self-interest on the part of software vendors and system integrators. So having an independent technology agnostic advisor like third stage is a way to counter that and have someone that's really representing you and only making money from you, paying them to give them advice rather than making money from the, the software vendors. So here's a, here's a comment from Brandon on YouTube says, we completely ignore the other stuff. Drives me crazy. LOL. Drives me crazy as well. So thank you for, uh, I'm glad I'm not the only one, Brandon. So thank you for uh, for your comment here. And then maybe a good place to close it here since we're we're out of time from William on, on uh, YouTube provides the greatest hoax of all, which is the main hoax is Bigfoot is alive and well and lives in Colorado. You're welcome. So uh, William is based in Colorado. Where, where I am as well. And uh, that's where third stage is based. We have offices in other countries in Europe, Africa, and Asia Pacific, but we are based globally here in, in uh, Colorado. So Bigfoot's alive and well, that's the last hoax I'll share with you here today, uh, courtesy of William on, on YouTube. So thank you for that. All right. Great conversation. Thank you everyone for your feedback and for the great comments and conversation as it relates to what is a very controversial and, and fun topic to talk about. It's unfortunate, but it is fun to talk about it. Um, in fact, we'll, we'll debrief on some of these points and uh, dive into some of the points that were brought up here in just a moment. But first, we'll take a quick break. You're listening to Transformation Ground Control. Are you looking to stay ahead of the curve in the ever-changing landscape of digital transformation? Then you need our newly released 2023 Digital Transformation Report. This comprehensive report covers the latest trends, technologies, and strategies to ensure your digital transformation is optimized for success. The 2023 Digital Transformation Report is packed full of proven methodologies and insights from experts in the independent digital transformation field. You'll also receive practical insights on how to implement digital transformation strategies within your unique organization. 
This free report is available for download on our website at thirdstage-consulting.com under our thought leadership section. Hello, welcome back to Transformation Ground Control, episode number 112. You can find new episodes every Wednesday on YouTube, LinkedIn, Facebook, Twitter, as well as audio podcast platforms throughout the world. So we just had this engaging conversation with the audience about industry hoaxes and what it means to buyers of technology and what it means to your digital transformation and how you can hopefully see past some of these hoaxes to better plan for and execute your digital transformation. What were some of your takeaways from that conversation, Kyler? Well, I actually wanted to share an an internal um, situation that we had that was very similar to a hoax that you kind of covered around vendor sales tactics. And we recently engaged with a software vendor, just like everybody else. We have technology and we're an organization that utilizes software vendors. And um, they wanted to push us to sign a contract in a week. And they said, you know, it's end of month, you have to do this, or you're going to lose this deal. And we worked really hard to get this for you. And of course, me being me, I urgently go to Eric and say, we need to sign this, we need to sign this. And he, being the expert witness he is, says that, you know, there's no, we're not signing anything that we feel rushed into. That's not our approach. And a great coaching moment for me. Um, But magically, the month ended. We took our time reviewing the contract. We made sure we got all of our needs in the contract and the deal was back on the table somehow, um, you know, the finance approved. So right. You got some sort of special one-time approval I that's know. never happened before that we heard it all in the history. Yeah. Yep. So, yep. So that was a hoax that, that reminded me of, you know, very similar pieces because it's a lot of pressure. And even as someone in the industry, I know very well what they're doing, but I still want to get that deal. And and here I am, you know, kind of taking a dose of my own medicine and taking your time, slow down, make sure that you're running the relationship as opposed to um, the vendors. So I thought I'd share that, that story that we experienced here. Yeah, that's a great, that's a great example. I think we've, we as a company have had a couple examples recently of our own digital journey that we're going on as we've grown as a company. And it's, it's kind of good. I mean, in some ways it's, it's good for us to experience this stuff ourselves firsthand, even though we advise our clients on it all the time. Sometimes you forget to apply those same things to yourself. It's almost like, you know, I don't know if that's true for doctors or other professionals like that, where you're, you're used to uh, solving problems of others, but then sometimes when it comes to yourself, you don't pay as much attention or you're just not thinking about it because it's not your, you know, your full-time job or whatever. So it, it was pretty interesting. Um, another thing we didn't get to in that conversation too, that's, um, maybe not, not similar to what you just said, but it just came to mind because it was another thread or a hoax that actually I had on my list. We just didn't have time to get to it was uh, the whole lift and shift concept about how you can just lift and shift one system to another. Um, and it, it's seamless behind the scenes. No one's ever going to know. And that's another, uh, challenge that we faced as a company ourselves in, in a recent Microsoft Outlook or, or Office 365 uh, migration uh, from one hosting provider to another. And it, it same kind of thing, lift and shift, it's behind the scenes, seamless, no one's even going to notice until they do. And there is disruption. So it's it's same. That was another uh, thread that I thought would probably be good to talk about. We just ran out of time, but that, that's an important one too. Yeah, definitely. And it, and if the audience has any other hoaxes that we didn't cover, because there are quite a, a few 
um, you know, that, that we didn't get to because some of some of the conversations are so triggering when it comes to the death of ERP, the cost of cloud and SaaS. If you haven't seen Eric's TikTok video on that, it's pinned on his profile um, and people go nuts. Um, that's where I pull a lot of questions from about the future of cloud-based solutions and mostly the cost of ownership. It's a very polarizing conversation as we saw kind of in some of our comments um, from our audience in that conversation. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. It's a it's a great place to to look for comments and join the conversation. And uh, yeah, I'd love to hear people's comments on all this stuff because it it does you know sort of like um, because we're not affiliated with software vendors, we're not selling software. We don't have skin in the game or a dog in the fight, other than just to advise our clients and make sure they're doing the right thing for them. That's really that's our sole focus. I mean, we're paid by our clients, no one else. So clients pay us to look out for them. And so it gives us a different perspective that most software vendors, consultants, and system integrators and implementers don't have, which they've been drinking the Kool-Aid for years and decades, and they've got their myopic one-size-fits-all answer. And that leads to a lot of unhealthy messages that lead to destructive or damaging actions or strategies from companies that are trying to deploy the technology. So it's, you know, I feel like in some ways it's our job to call this out. Let's have a discussion about this. Is this really real? And, and, and the fact that it's a trigger for many is, is interesting too. That's just as telling as the conversation itself is when people get irritated with us for calling this stuff out. It's like, why are you so irritated? If what we're saying is not true, then you shouldn't worry about it. Then we're just making stuff up. Right. But you must be worried about it because it might be true. Could that be, <laughs> could that be the case? So anyway, it's a, it's a fun conversation to have. And I think it's just Again, you have to be somewhat of a, what was that term that Clifford Martin from our team uses? Um, professional skepticism. Professional skepticism is a great term. And that's kind of how you have to be. You can, you can trust, you want to build a relationship. You need a partner, you know, on, on the software vendor side, system integrator side, but you just need to trust, but verify and have that professional skepticism as you go into the projects too, for sure. Absolutely. And, and two follow on items I'll have, Eric does have a hoax video, a couple of them on um, his YouTube channel. And then also if you have questions about um, a system that's being sunset, because we know that's kind of a push with our, um, our current industry is moving to cloud and sunsetting other systems, feel free to reach out to us. Um, we have a lot of clients that just have questions about what that looks like. He also has a new YouTube video on what, what to do if your, your system is on the list to be sunset. So um, we'll pop those links again here in, in the chat, but feel free to, to go over to his channel and, and kind of look at those different things. But speaking of the channel, um, we have a big congratulations and special Q&A um, with Eric for achieving those um, those 50,000 subscribers. Um, so that's such a huge milestone. So congratulations, Eric. Yeah, thank you. Thanks for that. And we're going to turn the turn the tables here, turn the mic back to you. And you're going to ask me a bunch of questions about mm -hmm. what's changed in the years that we've put together this YouTube channel and um, what's, you know, what's driven some of the growth and what, what trends are we seeing in the space? So we'll, we'll kind of have a strategic discussion around the enterprise technology space in a moment in the, in the context of that $50,000 or 50, I, I wish I made $50,000 off the YouTube channel, but contrary exactly. to popular belief, I, I do not. Um, <laughs> people always ask, people have asked me by the way, in the past, like, do you make, could you like make a living off that YouTube channel? I'm, I'm like, no, I mean, I have thousands of viewers, but I need tens of millions to be able to make a yeah. living on, on YouTube mm -hmm. ads or whatever. Um, yeah. but, uh, not $50,000, but 50,000 subscribers is the big milestone we're going to celebrate, um, here in a moment. 
And so we'll take a quick break. We'll be right back with more Transformation Ground Control. Interested in working for a company that truly values your unique skills and experience? Here at Third Stage, we don't hire based on resumes alone. We look at the full candidate, experience, and willingness to provide excellent service for our clients. Within a technology independent and agnostic consulting firm, you have the opportunity to learn across industries with a diverse group of clients. Our consultants also have the opportunity to diversify their portfolio and learn across technology systems. If you're interested in joining a high growth entrepreneurial organization, please reach out to us at work at thirdstage-consulting.com. Hello, welcome back to Transformation Ground Control, episode number 112. My name is Eric Kimberling here with Kyler Cheatham. You can find new episodes of this podcast every Wednesday, so be sure to subscribe, like us, and check us out and share our show with others that you think might benefit from it. Um, we want to shift gears a little bit, turn the tables a little bit, and have Kyler ask some questions here about the future of enterprise technology, some general trends we're seeing in the space, what's changed in the space over recent years. And uh, we're doing all this in the context of celebrating 50,000 subscribers on my YouTube channel. And I want to thank anyone who does subscribe. And if you don't subscribe to it, um, you know, help me get to 51,000 faster, if you don't mind, so that uh, so we can continue to get the message out. Uh, but in all seriousness, I, I do uh, try to put out decent content several times a week and stuff that's meant to educate and inform and, and guide and help people through uh, transformations, whether you're working for a company or whether you're uh, consultant or you're a student learning about digital transformation. It's really intended for all those different audiences. So why don't I turn it over to you, Kyler, and you can sort of take it from here in terms of asking us, asking me some of the questions that you've, you've got from me related to that. Absolutely. Well, let's get into it. Can you talk a little bit about your mission with your YouTube channel and why you felt as though it was so important to put all of this free premium content out to your audience? Yeah, it was sort of um, sort of an accident. I would love to say it was some brilliant strategy or plan that I had all along, but it was not at all that. It was a, a situation that, um, you know, when I left Panorama to start Third Stage, I had to figure out a way to market the company differently than I had done at Panorama because it took me, you know, 12 or 13 years to build up the blog and the, the SEO engine that we had built at, at Panorama. And that's what I did at Panorama. I wrote a lot of blogs and, and – um, got traction through SEO. So when I started third stage, I knew I couldn't replicate all that I had done in 10 years quickly. So I was trying to think of other ways to get the message out that, about third stage and what we stood for. And, and at that time, what the new company was all about. So I had put a couple of videos up um, just sort of intermittently um, just to get, you know, some FaceTime with potential clients and whatnot. And then um, over time, I noticed that some of those videos started to get traction and go viral. And so I thought maybe I should do more videos. And so I started doing more. And then finally, the ones I was putting out that I was just crudely producing on my laptop or my phone or whatever were starting to go viral too. So I said, well, what if we just start professionally editing them and, and stepping it up, stepping it up a notch? So that was that was about four years ago, I guess it was almost four years ago that I decided to uh, to do two videos a week. And then you know then we started doing the podcast and the live streams and all that stuff on top of it. So we just keep doubling down on the video thing as we see it work more and more. So that's really, there's, it wasn't any grand 
master plan. It was more of an accident and reacting to what I was seeing in the, in the market and, and with the channel. Absolutely. And, and I'd love to hear from our audience. Do you subscribe to Eric's channel or is there a favorite video that you've watched um, of his? Um, and you can pop all of that in the chat. We can actually see it live. If you do have questions for him, you can also pop that in the chat um, as well. And I can bring them up and, and ask questions in real time. So Eric, why do you feel like it's so important to kind of be the disruptor voice within kind of the digital transformation or software industry? Because some of the the content you put out can be controversial in the fact that it's not kind of on message with the the bigger software companies or system integrators. Yeah, and it's I think that's uh you know that dynamic you're describing is especially true in today's society, sort of a, a cancel culture and that sort of thing where you you have to you have to toe the company line or you have to stick with a mainstream narrative or else you're, you're ostracized in some way. So it, it does make it in some ways even more jarring. Some of the stuff we say and uh, some of the philosophies we have, but it's really, in my opinion, it's, it's really just saying the truth. We're saying what everyone knows and thinks they just don't say it out loud. And so that's really what I try to do is um, just say the things that we all kind of know to be true, but no one really wants to say uh, primarily because, you know, software vendors have their, machine and their ecosystems that they've built to have finely tuned marketing messages and finely crafted, well-controlled narratives. Um, and it, it extends beyond software vendors. It goes to the system integrators. It goes to the industry analysts who are all paid by the software vendors to, to, re, to perpetuate that same message. So you get this sort of echo chamber that the industry has built that talks about how great everything is, how great technology is, and how everyone should be going through a digital transformation right now or else they're going to fail everyone should move to the cloud right now or else they're going to fail. It's, it's just sort of like you get, I think the industry gets tired of that, that biased messaging. And then we come along and say something like, well, hold on a minute. You don't have to move to the cloud if you don't want to, or you don't have to upgrade your technologies that you have options. You have, you know, there's pros and cons to any approach you take. And so it's really just coming out and stating the truth, which is really weird that that's so disruptive and so crazy and so far out there in the industry, but we're just saying, we're just, saying it like it is and what we see on the front lines with with clients and uh, we don't sell software so we have no dog in the fights and we have no skin in the game in terms of uh, wanting to necessarily disrupt or go against the vendor narrative it's just you know we, we, we just tend to call out the the pros and the cons of different scenarios and situations yeah it's always so interesting that having um, the intention of your client goals is so um, against the norm. Um, so, you know, it's, I think that's why your audience feels like that's so refreshing is because you are an advocate for them and that is your only agenda. Yeah. It kind of reminds me in some ways, it kind of reminds me a little bit of the, um, years ago when the financial services industry went through, um, went through some changes where they had to separate the, the industry analysts from the, firms that were actually selling stocks and things like that, because you, you had the industry analysts that were peddling their own, mm -hmm. their own products. And so the, you know, regulatory pressures caused that to stop. Um, I don't know that we'll ever get there anytime soon in, in this industry, but it's sort of, to me, the same sort of thing. You have a really, you have sort of a rigged system right now. And so what I love about it is we can come along and not being tethered by any sort of vendor relationship or formal vendor relationship not having any financial ties to the software vendors really gives us the flexibility to be able to state the truth. Whereas most consultants, most system integrators, most software vendors can't really do what we do because it, mm -hmm. it goes against their own self-interest. So um, anyway, so that, that's really um, an interesting point as well. 
Absolutely. Well, definitely the fundamentals of your channel, but I want to get to your audience questions because I think that's a, a huge reason in why your channel has grown so quickly is because you truly do respond and acknowledge comments, not only in real time on live streams like this, but in your additional podcasts, which you have two of. Um, so you have Ground Control and then um, your shorter form podcast, which is uh, Digital Stratosphere that drops every Monday, Wednesday and Friday. Uh, also, the videos on on Eric's channel and Third Stage channel, we respond to all of those comments and Eric does personally on his social media. So if you haven't seen our question jar, this is a jar that I utilize in our Ground Control Transformation Ground Control podcast, which you can find anywhere you get your podcast um, or any channel you're listening on now. But I take the user questions or audience questions and I put them in here. So you, I'm going to ask Eric some of these questions that I pulled already. But if you have questions for him right now, go ahead and pop them in the chat wherever you're viewing. And I'll bring them up on the screen and, and we can kind of get to our audience questions since this is kind of a celebration for them too. Yeah, absolutely. All right, good. Here we go. This is a, this is a comment. Sometimes I... Um, I pull comments mostly for my own entertainment, but so Eric can respond to them, especially if they're funny. So this one is from um, your review of Oracle NetSuite um, on TikTok that you put up. So if you don't follow Eric on TikTok, his shorter form videos, you can follow him there too. But this this user said Oracle is the new blockbuster slash circuit city of this industry. <laughs> so I wonder what your response would be to that um, because the, this user's got jokes. So. <laughs> That's funny. It, it, it's funny how Blockbuster and Circuit City both have such negative connotations. And um, if you're not familiar, if you're not familiar with either mm -hmm. company, they're both U.S. or they were both U.S. based companies that were highly successful at one point. Now they're largely obsolete and irrelevant. So I think that's what the user is suggesting or that, that what the audience member is suggesting will happen to Oracle. Um, yeah, I don't know. I, I maybe maybe they end up becoming obsolete. But right now where we are and the current time and place. I think NetSuite, NetSuite in particular, I think is in an, an actually a, a pretty good spot because they're, you know, they're a native uh, SaaS solution, whereas a lot of software vendors are still trying to get to the cloud and they're they're trying to catch up in the cloud and SaaS arms race, whereas Oracle or NetSuite has are has always been in the cloud, so they they yeah. aren't playing the same catch up game. They've got a more mature cloud solution than than most, if not all, you know, all the other software vendors. Um, the other thing that I think NetSuite has going for it is ever since Oracle bought the company um, many years ago, um, they've been a lot more aggressive going after the, you know, kind of the, the mid-market as well. So yeah. they're kind of moving upstream and um, we're seeing NetSuite now more relevant in, in larger and larger organizations, yeah. maybe not Fortune 500 or large multinational global organizations as much, but we, we are seeing it more in the mid-market, even upper mid-market. So I, I think right now it's absolutely relevant. Maybe someday we'll look back and say, yep, uh, NetSuite became the blockbuster of the 2020s. But right now, um, I, I don't see that happening. It could. I mean, it, I've been around long enough to know that these vendors come and go and that systems come and go. Um, when I first started, uh, for example, Bond was still a really big deal. Mm -hmm. And SAP was sort of the, the disruptor and the threat to Bond. And now no one ever really talks about Bond unless they're trying to replace the system. And SAP, of course, is, is the more prominent um, one of those two. So. I've been around long enough to know that this stuff all changes and what is relevant today and what's hot today in technology five or 10 years from now will be totally obsolete. And we'll look back at this video and say that was totally off base for, for the long term. So, which is okay. 
Very interesting. Yep, definitely an evolution within the industry um, and sometimes a little cyclical. But um, I want to bring up this comment here from uh, a user on LinkedIn. Sometimes we can see your name, sometimes we can't. Um, so this is uh, just talking about my first exposure to third stage was when my team um, was selecting an ERP system for my last employer. Your video on negotiating with ERP vendors was such a help. And of course, congratulations on the 50K. So lots of congratulation messaging coming in. But the ERP vendor negotiations is something you focus on a lot. And why do you think it's important to kind of lift the veil on talking about what it means to actually go through a vendor negotiation? Well, I think that topic, as well as a lot of the topics I cover on my YouTube channel are things that are meant to be, they're meant to be helpful and meant to help, help outline the, the full scope and the full picture of what you're going through in a digital transformation. So in other words, I'm trying to, I'm not trying to be mean when I talk about, you know, how to, how to beat up a vendor in the negotiation process. I'm not trying to be mean when I say software product A is not perfect here are the strengths, but here are the weaknesses you need to be aware of. I'm not doing that stuff to poke holes or to, um, you know, poke at the bear, so to speak, even though sometimes I think people feel like I am, I'm really yeah. not. I'm just stating facts again and, and right. stating an objective unbiased view of the market. And that's the same thing I'm doing in those negotiation videos is just stating, you know, here's how vendors make money. Um, mm -hmm. here's what they want and here's what you want and need. And, you know, here's some strategies on how to reconcile that and sort of meet in the middle. And, um, and again, back to your point, what you said earlier, Kyler, about um, really coming at it from a client perspective mm -hmm. and giving clients the ammunition and the knowledge to be able to be on a level playing field with the software vendors and the big system integrators is really important to me. And I think that's an important dynamic that's been missing in the industry is that the software vendors and the SIs have too much power. I mean, they have too mm -hmm. much influence. They have too much control. You see it right now. Um, on a side note, you see it right now with the whole cloud migration and the sunsetting of legacy on-premise systems. I get that we're heading to the cloud. That's where we're going. But the fact that software vendors are coming out and basically twisting the arms of their mm -hmm. own clients to say, you need to get off the system because we're going to stop supporting it. And by the way, you need to move to the cloud because we make more money when you move to the cloud. Mm -hmm. um, that, that to me is a problem. And so my whole part of the purpose of the vision or the mission of the channel, even though I didn't have this... Um, purpose or, or mission early on, and it wasn't planned. But as the channel started to get traction, I really felt like there's a voice that we could have mm -hmm. to help clients level that playing field and not be so at, at a disadvantage with the vendors, with the big software vendors and the big system integrators and that sort of thing. So that's really the whole idea is to, uh, you know, really paint the whole picture in negotiations or whatever the topic of the video might be. Absolutely. And if you haven't seen um, Eric's negotiation videos, you can go ahead and head over to his YouTube channel if you're not on it already. Um, he does have a variety of assets because the if you miss on the negotiation process, then you are trapped right into this agreement that might cost you a lot of resources, financial resources and just internal resources within your digital transformation. And a main reason that you might have to engage someone like Eric in an expert witness. Hopefully litigation is always the last option, right? But that's the, why we, we um, and Eric put out so much on that so that you really are armed to have that conversation. Okay, we're here having a conversation about the future of enterprise technology and recognition of 50,000 subscribers on our YouTube channel. We've got a lot more to cover. We're gonna take a quick break. We'll be right back with more Transformation Ground Control.
If you are aiming for transformation success, turn to Third Stage Consulting Group. Third Stage's independent and technology agnostic consulting team helps clients define their digital strategies, define their roadmaps, and manage their transformations. With offices in the US, Europe, and Australia, our team helps the world's most forward-thinking organizations through their transformation pitfalls and risks. If you are embarking on a digital transformation or business change initiative, contact Third Stage Consulting to see how we can help you reach the third stage of transformation success. Learn more about us and download independent reports, videos, and other best practices at thirdstage-consulting.com. Hello, welcome back to Transformation Ground Control, episode number 112. Kyler is here asking me some questions about the future of enterprise tech and other trends in the market as it relates to hitting our milestone of 50,000 subscribers on my YouTube channel. I want to bring up um, this this question from Anastasia on, on YouTube. Um, I work as a change manager of SaaS transformations. With all the different changes, it's hard to focus. What hard skills would you recommend to learn slash have to stay a valuable asset? That's a really interesting question. Usually yeah, it's the opposite. <laughs> yeah. Know? Yeah. Especially if you're a change manager, I think that's, um, that's the right kind of question to ask if you're, if you're managing change, um, you know, having something more than the, the softer side of change, having something more tangible and, and more hard uh, concrete skill set is going to be important. So, you know what, I'll just tell you what I look for when I'm hiring people or when we're hiring people on our team. Um, obviously, uh, cultural fit's a huge thing. So that for us as a company, we we gauge largely on cultural fit. Um, but in terms of the skills we look for, um, you know, when, when we have change consultants or candidates for change consultants that are interested in joining the team, I'll look for things like not just the ProSci certifications or the, the change management experience, right. but I'll also look for those that have some sort of operational experience. So if they've got a Lean Six Sigma background or process reengineering background, that that hard skill is mm-hmm. really powerful when you combine it with the change management knowledge. I think that's a powerful combination. Same with if you know, you know, if you can um, get some sort of certification or deeper knowledge of a certain technology. Mm-hmm. When I started my career, again, this was not part of my master plan. In fact, I resisted this, but I'm glad it didn't work out the way I wanted to at the time. But when I started at Price Waterhouse, I knew I wanted to be a change management consultant. But one of the first things they did is my partner that I work for um, sent me to um, get certified in SAP. It was R3 at the time, SAP R3. And I said, well, you know, why would I get certified in SAP when I'm going to be a change management consultant? And it, it just, long story short, she just said, trust me, you just need to. And uh, I did, and I'm glad I did. So I ended up doing change management for SAP implementations, but I could do it better because I knew how the technology worked. And I wasn't like an expert. I wasn't configuring or coding or anything like that, but I knew enough about it to, to really understand how the software would change a, a client's business. So I think having any sort of tangible skill set like that, whether it's technical knowledge for whatever technology you might be deploying or, or operational knowledge, um, those are two areas in particular that I think are pretty powerful combinations, especially when you combine it with, with uh, change management. Absolutely. And that's a great question. So kudos to you, Anastasia, for you know wanting to to branch out um, because that piece of consulting and on the other flip side, if you are a very technical consultant, having those more softer skills like change management 
is makes you more holistic and valuable to the overall transformation. So for sure. Yeah. All right, back to the jar. All right. Shake it up. All right, so this is kind of a specific question, but an interesting one. What are some good options for real estate or property management systems when it comes to going through a digital transformation? Ooh, um, I'm busted on this one. Uh, a, I don't have a lot of experience in, in yeah. that vertical. B, I'm drawing a total blank on systems that are good for that space, partly because I don't have much experience in it. Yeah. So. So this um, is what I'll say to save you in this situation. We do actually work with a variety of property management companies. So whoever yeah. wrote this question, I'm going to go talk to our system experts because we do have those here at third stage. And then I'm going to respond to you of what they say so that we know we don't, we don't take a ton of time since we only have 10 minutes left with Eric. Sound like a, a good, Sounds good plan. Good. Yeah. Yeah. Fortunately, our company is much larger than me. We have 70 <laughs> other people that are much smarter than me. So, uh, that Me collective too. knowledge is gonna i'm just the talent eric that's what right. we are <laughs> right exactly okay? yeah we're, we're just the faces of the company we don't actually you and i don't know as much right <laughs> <laughs> yeah okay this is an interesting question again and it talks about higher education um why is digital transformation so difficult in higher education and how can you get through a very political type of organization well, I think that that nails it on the head. The last part of that question, that's what I was going to say when you first asked it was the, the political uh, nature of schools and also the yeah. unions and tenure. Um, anytime you have that sort of uh, backdrop for any sort of organization, not just higher education, but it could also be government. It could also be, um, you know, a, a semi-regulated environment or a, a, a just an old school sort of industry where you've got a lot of tenure, a lot of unions, a lot of politics. Anytime you have those dynamics, it just creates a backdrop of mm -hmm. difficulty going through change because those right there are going to be barriers and potential headwinds to the change, not because people are intentionally trying to sabotage a transformation necessarily, but because by nature, those organizations are harder to change and slower to change in general. And mm -hmm. when you go through digital transformation, you're, you're speeding things up, you're speeding up the change, and that's running counter to what the organizational culture typically is. Absolutely. And I'm actually going to cherry pick the next question because it's along these lines. So this is from your stakeholder management video on TikTok. Um, and this person along those lines, how can managers drive a digital transformation without a digital transformation culture? So very much on that middle management, lots of politics. Um, how can you create change if you might not be that in that executive position? Yeah, it's it's uh, it's an interesting question because a lot of times a lot of our client organizations, you know, they're they're trying to manage up the mm -hmm. organization. They're trying to manage up, and the, the change management issues oftentimes are coming from the top, and that's really difficult. I mean, in a perfect world, of course, you would say, well, let's let's make sure the leadership is all on board and the leadership's aligned and all that good stuff. And the reality is that's not always the case. And so what we do is we'll we'll typically um, we'll typically start off by 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 engaging leadership mm -hmm. and getting alignment and, and getting clarity on their vision and making sure they're on the same page with where they want to go as an organization. And a lot of times you can do that in a Trojan horse kind of way, not to say, Hey, you guys are misaligned. So we need to have an, an alignment workshop mm -hmm. with you guys because that's, that's threatening, right? And that, that, yeah. that usually isn't well-received, but if you go at it from the perspective of if I'm a lower level person and I, and I recognize there's a lack of alignment or I need to get more alignment or engagement from 
higher up, then I might say, I might go at it from the angle of, well, this is a first step in a digital transformation is to translate your vision for the company and your strategy um, into a digital transformation strategy. And so therefore we need to pick your brains to be able to get that information, to be able to do our jobs. And usually that's, you know, better received and you're that, and you're also kind of speaking the language of executives too. So that's one way of seeing work pretty well to work up the organization. And then of course, working down the organization, engaging middle managers and key influencers and stakeholders within the organization, you know, there's a whole strategy and process to go through to, to get that, to get that done. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And one thing I'll add, just talking to your YouTube channel and that overall um, authenticity of your videos, many times what we've seen in very highly political or struggling with executive alignment is Eric will actually come talk and do an executive workshop with their team um, and showing them his YouTube channel and being able to say, hey, you know, there we have thought leaders, we have industry experts can really kind of help get that alignment. So if you are struggling with that, feel free to reach out to us and we can we can really put together um, some sort of uh, unique package to ensure that that we're helping with that because it's a big part of what we do here at Third Stage. Um, yeah, and I love doing that, by the way. That's one of my favorite parts of my job is being able to do exactly that with, yeah. with executive teams. Yeah. And that's, it's so helpful to the project team as well, because you're able to really sit down and not only have this business thought leadership, which is what Eric really speaks on is business transformations. It's the technology is the spine of the organization, of course, but we're all going through um, some sort of big change as, as a business. So it's a a great asset to have. Um, And I'm going to bring up this, I don't know if this is like, you know, a, a placed comment here, or we might already know the answer to this, but I think it's really important to talk about your YouTube content because you do a ton of software evaluations, independent and completely technology agnostic. You don't get paid for those. Nobody gets paid for those in any way, shape or form. So I kind of want you to talk a little bit about this. So this question is, what is the ERP D365 ranking in 2023? So you can answer that question, but also tell us how you do your rankings and how you kind of come to giving that really un- bias opinion around software systems. Yeah. So, well, first I'd say the QR code that you see on the screen here, you can, you can use that to download our 2023 digital transformation report. And that has the complete rankings in there, not just for overall rankings for ERP, but top 10 by different industry verticals and different types of systems like warehouse management or HR and that sort of thing. Um, so you can get the full rankings there. But if I remember correctly, I believe Microsoft Dynamics was number one mm-hmm. um, in twenty in our most recent ranking. Uh, prior to that, NetSuite was number one, and then they sort of flipped positions in the more recent one. And the way we do those rankings is part art, part science. I mean, it's it's largely based on our observations and knowledge of having worked with all these mm-hmm. different systems. And it while it's on one hand, it's very difficult to generalize enough to do a top 10 ranking we do it in a way that looks at cross industry cross you know cross geography independent of industry vertical and company size what are the you know the most commonly selected and the most successful implementations we see and microsoft dynamics is high up there or on the top of the list largely because of the flexibility of the product Mm -hmm. the fact that there's so many microsoft shops out there that adapt a little bit easier to uh, microsoft dynamics um, the fact they can integrate, it's open, you know, it's open integration or open architecture to integrate better with third-party systems. So those are a few of the reasons why it, it rated so high. But to your point, 
um, we're not affiliated with Microsoft. And there's a lot of times where we go into client situations and say, Microsoft's not a good fit for you. Mm -hmm. So um, despite the fact that it's number one on our list, it's oftentimes not even on the short list for, for our clients because, you know, specific industry verticals or specific needs don't match up with what uh, the dynamics needs are. So um, that's, that's a little bit of background there. But again, if you scan that QR code, that'll give you the full, the full rankings there. Yes, absolutely. And if you want a specific system, you can search Eric's YouTube channel. You can search our website. We have all of those. Um, and they're also updated. So if you see an older one from 2020, they're always updated in the blogs or whatever asset you're utilizing that for. So, all right, last question. And then I have to bring this up because I don't know what this means. So you have to help me. Is the question jar ISO certified? And I tried to like Google that real quick to be like, what does that mean? So uh, I don't know, William. <laughs> I assure you that it's not ISO certified. I think it's being funny there, but um, I can't remember what ISO stands for, but that's a, like a manufacturing quality thing. That, there you uh, go. We need to brand the question jar and we also need to get you like an it depends sign. So you can just like fade that in. And yes. all types of things. So, yeah, make that part of a, an ongoing drinking game for the audience too, because I, I say it so often. I know, I know. Um, what would be the best thing for an inspiring integration consultant to focus on? And maybe I'll just morph this onto the movement in the industry around focusing on integrations um, and the need for kind of that specialized talent around that connectivity in your organization. Yeah, I think, um, I mean, certainly you can, you can hone in and focus on a certain technology or a certain software vendor like SAP or Oracle or Microsoft or whatever. Um, that's, that's one path. Um, and these aren't all mutually exclusive. You can combine paths too, but that's, that's one path you could go down. Another path is, um, that I think is going to be in particularly high demand is going to be anything to do with architecture, system architecture, and being able to design technologically how systems are going to fit together and how data is going to flow and whatnot. And then anything to do with data science, business intelligence, analytics. I mean, that's such a hot area right now. Um, if I were coming out of college or just starting my career, that might, that probably be an area I'd be super interested in is just diving into uh, data science and all that, all that good stuff. So those are a few things. And again, you could, you could mix and match those paths. It's not like you have to pick one of them, um, but those might be some areas to add some, some ways to add some specialization, but also add some uh, breadth to your, to your repertoire and your skill set as well. Yeah. And if, if you missed um, Eric's conversation with our chief strategy offer, officer here at Third Stage, um, Greg Benton, they talk a lot about interoperability. Um, when Greg joined the team, which has been such a fabulous asset, he brought that interoperability concept. And I was like, we're never going to say that on camera because Eric and I can't say digitization. So we've gotten to... Can. So we've gotten gotten to the point where we can now say interoperability because it is such a trend in the industry um, and something that is definitely here to stay when it comes to the maximize, maximization of value with you, ever you're in an ERP system or a best of breed, whatever that looks like. But um, I know we're at the end of our time today, um, but I have one more question for you, Eric, is is what's next for your your YouTube channel or for your overall influence or content? Yeah, so um, of course I want to keep growing the channel and and listening to the market and and providing content that's valuable and and you know reaches a larger audience. Um, so constantly looking for ways to do that. Um, so the the organic growth that we've had 
with the YouTube channel will want to continue down that path and maybe accelerate it uh, as time goes on. Um, but, you know, some other things we have coming up there outside the realm of the YouTube channel, but complementary to it is, is one is I have a book that's being uh, published at some point this year. We're trying to finalize that. And given the nature, the busy nature of our growth in business, that, mm-hmm. that hasn't happened as fast as I'd like, but it, the book is complete. And now we're just waiting to get it out to the, to the market. So that um, that's one thing is, is my first book. Um, the other is an event, an in-person event, our first in-person event since uh, COVID, um, Digital Stratosphere, which we did several of them before COVID, and they were highly successful, a lot of really good content, really good speakers, um, not just myself, but you know, a dozen or so other speakers um, and thought leaders in the industry. So that's coming up in the fall. Um, so those are two things that we have that are sort of ways that we want to reach the audience and interact with the community here. Excellent. Well, thank you for all of your hard work on this great content. And thank you to the audience, because really, we do um, get a ton of ideas from you. And I know Eric cares very much about your engagement and your overall feedback on um, the content. All right. Thank you, Kyler. Thanks for the great questions. And thanks to the audience for the great questions as well. Uh, Thank you for another great episode, Kyler and audience. Appreciate everyone listening and being a part of this show and part of this uh, global digital transformation community. As a reminder, you can find new episodes every Wednesday, same time, same place. If you're watching a stream of this on LinkedIn, YouTube, Facebook, or Twitter, it's every Wednesday at that same time, or you can watch it after the fact on any of those channels. You can also listen to it. If you prefer the audio only uh, option, you can listen on Google, Spotify, Amazon, Pandora, wherever you listen to pan- wherever you listen to podcasts, uh, you can find it there. So be sure to check us out there. So hope you all have a great week and we'll see you next time on Transformation Ground Control. Hello, my name is, whoa, hi, my name's Eric. <laughs> Already screwed up, right? Sweet. That our audience leaves on Eric's social media profiles, YouTube, LinkedIn, um, and, uh, sorry, let me do that again. Um, sorry, Cassie, we're all just all over the place.